Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, St. Joe's and Hamilton on the cutting edge of helping us get through COVID-19. China is putting the final boots to Hong Kong. How will the rest of the world react? And will you pay more for a COVID-19 surcharge to pay for your safety? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scientists at the Research Institute at St. Joe's are developing an entirely novel method of testing COVID-19. And uh, that allows for increasing the capacity that everybody is talking about. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Marek Smea, infectious disease physician researcher at St. Joe's, also interim chief of laboratory medicine at Hamilton Regional, uh, Regional Laboratory Program. And is with us now, doctor, thank you so much for the time. And I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. And I, before I we get... I ho- I, I was just going to say, I hope your, your son actually has changed his clothes in the last 10 weeks. That sounds scary. <laughs> okay, maybe once. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, lots that's going on uh, in the news today in regard to testing and such. Before we get to that, just want to pass along, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking for all of our, our listeners, and please pass along to other healthcare workers and the people from from the laboratory all the way down to the frontline workers, uh, how proud we are of everybody in the healthcare system and thank them so much for all the great work uh, that you are doing. Uh, kudos to St. Joe's. Uh, kudos to St. Joe's obviously getting some, uh, some press here in regard to testing. Tell everybody where you are. Sure. So, so we started this work back in January, and, and I've uh, spoken to the media a little bit before. Uh, we first developed novel tests back in January. There were no tests for this, and so our lab developed two different tests that are actually now not only used in our clinical lab here at St. Joe's, and that serves the whole city. It serves Niagara and Burlington and other areas, and I think we've done about 50,000 of those tests in the last uh, two months or so. So we developed the, the tests that are now being used. Uh, we then developed Developed some basic automation, and that went into effect about a month and a half ago. And so, uh, so in fact, a lot of the tests we do today are done with with a type of automation that the research lab helped develop. Um, and I think, uh, like I said, we went live with that about uh, six weeks ago. So the next two phases are the ones that were kind of a bit unanticipated. The first was the whole world is running out of all the supplies you need, the swabs, the transport media, the extraction methods, the kits and the machines we run them on. And so we've spent the last two months really trying to figure out alternatives to that. And so one of the things that, uh, that, that um, uh, we came up with was uh, Dr. Uh, Bueller in our research lab developed the actual transport medium that we use, which we were all running out of. So, uh, so this was actually really fortuitous for two reasons. One is it's biosafe, meaning you put uh, the swab in it, it kills the virus, and that actually m- both makes it safer for any lab people handling it. Mm. It dramatically simplifies the process of getting it on, onto our instruments. Uh, but the second thing, it, it enables something called pooling, uh, which we can talk about in a moment. So we developed the initial test, the initial automation. We're securing the supply chain so that we can do all of these things in large numbers, and now we're looking at pooling as a way of dramatically escalating that further. So just to even clarify this for the layman here, that this is the process that happens once the sample has been collected. It is sent off to the laboratory, and this is uh, that first stage right till the final uh, diagnosis either way. Yeah, 
Yeah, and, and our lab has been live. Uh, the clinical lab has been live since mid March, um, and uh, and you know these are not these are high throughput. They're not really rapid methods. This isn't like a one hour test. Uh, I think our lab has maintained <clears throat> sort of eight to twelve hour turnaround time once it reaches our lab, and we've tried very hard to make sure we can always get tests back within about twenty four hours. And uh, we've had a few little gaps, but generally we've always been able to uh, to do that. So where you are right now, doctor, what are your challenges that lie ahead? Sure. So the uh, the transport media was a big one. We think we've solved that. We're now working with the government to scale it up. So that's gone into production of about uh, 50,000 to 70,000 of these little tubes uh, with the special transport medium. And we've got partners in other hospitals uh, around Ontario who are helping us evaluate it. So that's the next stage. The province is very interested, if this works, to scale it up further so that it would be available throughout Ontario. So that that's one part of it. The Robotics is, uh, maybe I can explain what we mean by pooling. Mm -hmm. Pooling, we take, let's say, four specimens that come into the lab, and rather than doing each one individually, we take a small sample, put it together, and we treat it like one specimen. So there's one pooled specimen. And we've done this off and on for 15 years. We've we've, uh, did this for influenza back in 2009. Just as a research endeavor, we never introduced it in my clinical lab. But what we found is every time you took one plus one plus one plus one, we didn't get four like we expected. We got three and a half. And what that meant is let's say we tested 100 specimens and 10 of them were, were meant to be positive. We might miss one of them. So there was something in pooling that took a little bit of signal away. And so in developing a new transport medium, uh, David was able to find a way where it preserves the amount of of, uh, virus in it so that now when you add four specimens, you get four and not three and a half. So so that was really, it sounds minor, but we don't want to test that's 95%. We want to test that's 100%, and we believe we're the first to, to have actually achieved that. So we're, we're uh, on behalf of my staff, I think that was a huge endeavor, which was really based on not being complacent. When I saw the results that we could detect 95%, I said, well, that's pretty good. We can save three quarters of our reagents and do four times as much. And they said, no, not good enough. We got to understand this, and they spent, you know, literally the last uh, two months understanding it, and then developing new media that would allow us to do this better. Are you surprised, Doctor, how far all of these scientists have come in such a short period of time? It's it's, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, I remember when when we had SARS back in two thousand and three, and uh, we were able within about a week to develop a test. Um, But I think, you know, it was big news back then when people did, uh, you know, sequence the whole virus and then the whole world got involved. And I I remember it took us a number of weeks to get all of our labs together across Ontario to work together on SARS. And I think that that collaboration still continues. And so what I found is within a day of, of some of these things happening, labs were collaborating, we were developing tests, we were sharing tests. And so I think we have come a long way. Uh, it's also amazing how much has been published week by week. We've had, you know, hundreds of publications to the point where I have staff to skim through it because I can't possibly keep up with all of it. Um, we hear constantly testing, 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 especially as things start to reopen up. Uh, I guess nationally we have the capacity to test about 60,000 people. Uh, we've certainly heard the province say that they're expanding their testing. We're hearing this uh, between Ontario and Quebec and such. 
but and we've certainly seen the frustration what is can you explain to us why there we we seem to have the capacity to test but we can't necessarily get it done any thoughts there yeah, and and, and uh, so I think you know a month ago we we badly wanted to be testing more and more and more. We had a lot of clinical kind of pressures to test more, and 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 our labs are still kind of expanding to get to the capacity we have today. So as part of those pressures, all hospitals, all public health departments had to put rules around. You can't you know if if for every one person who presented to the to the emergency department needing hospital admission, if there were a hundred people who had minor symptoms, we couldn't test everybody. So a month ago, we had to put uh, those sort of decisions in place. And so, you know, most people who had a flu-like illness would not have been tested uh, at that time. Today, we're asking that those people be tested because, in a sense, we've, we've gone through the peak. At peak, we couldn't possibly test everybody in the province who had symptoms. Today, with fewer people getting symptoms, with, with, with having, you know, a few weeks that we think past peak, this is the time we need to try to find every case in the province. So what do we need, from where we stand now, doctor, what do, from what you feel, what do we need to do to reopen? Where does testing have to be? Yeah, so I think what the hospitals have learned is, you know, how to keep hospitals reasonably safe. And obviously hospitals have attracted some media attention because some of our healthcare workers have got sick. But by and large, at least in Hamilton, we can say virtually all hospital workers who got sick, they got sick from one another, not from patients. So I think we have learned to protect ourselves as doctors and nurses and others from our patients who might have COVID. But we are still learning how to socially distance, wear masks, do all those sort of things to make sure we don't uh, you know, at the lunchroom and other settings that we don't catch it from others. So the question is, how does that hospital, you know, what we've learned, which is basically we screen people coming in, like our staff coming in to make sure they don't have any symptoms. If they do, they can't work and they need to be tested. At work, if you can't socially distance, you have to have a mask. So in most settings, our hospital workers are all wearing masks, not just for patient contact, but for contact with one another. Um, you know, socially distancing at lunchtime, at break time, at smoking breaks, things like that. So how do you do all of that in every single workplace across Ontario? I think that's the big challenge because there's no doubt in my mind, if we're not socially distancing, if we're not screening people for symptoms going to a workplace, we are going to see outbreaks in those workplaces. Uh, and we can't prevent all COVID, but if we can prevent outbreaks from becoming large, then I think over time we can make, you know, uh, find all the cases, find all the contacts and try to uh, basically uh, try to get this uh, illness to go away. So right now, doctor, obviously the kids are out for the rest of uh, this school year. Many are working from home right now. Will all of those people need to be tested before they enter those institutions or workplaces again? Yeah, so so I, I think the first priority for testing beyond what we've already been doing in the hospitals and nursing homes and so on, first priority uh, would clearly be anybody who's got symptoms. Um, there's a secondary question, which is, are there higher risk settings where you want to pe- treat people, you want to test people uh, even without symptoms? So we will do this, for example, if you're going through a high-risk surgery or chemotherapy, uh, because we believe there's some data to show that if you're already brewing COVID, you're you, you, you may be, get quite sick if we then give you chemotherapy or radiation therapy or put you through a major surgery. I don't think we would be screening 
children with no symptoms. It's simply that would require millions and millions of tests. And I don't think our capacity, even with what we've talked about, is anywhere near that. But I think we may be able to offer screening to much larger populations. So, for example, the nursing homes have all gone through one round of screening. But we still haven't opened them up to visitors. Would screening visitors to enable them to visit their loved ones, would that be a sensible thing? And can we do that in small enough numbers that, you know, our system can keep up with it? Are there high, you know, stakes occupations, pilots, others where testing might become the norm uh, because we can't wait until they get symptoms? So I think we need the capacity, but we absolutely need to ask those broader questions we have a tool. How do we use it wisely? If we step up from 10 to 20,000, and at peak we've hit 20,000, if we step that up to 50,000 tests a day or 100,000 tests a day for a population of Ontario with 13 million, how do you use that wisely to help keep us safe? Hmm. Uh, many are asking, and, and this is a crystal ball question, doctor, but many are asking what this is going to look like through the summer. How, what do you see? Hmm. So I think if we can redevelop our workplaces and, and you know, uh, I don't know, I, I, I assume we won't see cabs and so on. Uh, but, but I think if we can socially distance like we're trying to do in hospitals, I do believe workplaces will slowly be able to all open up. Um, you know, with the with with the exception of a mass gatherings and 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 you know the, the the theaters and so on. But even you know, can you have patios where people have their their uh, their their meal and uh, socially distance? Can you have uh, masks by those who need them? You can't eat a meal with a mask, but you can certainly deliver the food with a mask. So I, I do hope we see a fair bit of liberalization in terms of those rules. But at the same time, the principle that we still have to socially distance is going to be absolutely uh, critical. I think we'll see small outbreaks here and there throughout the summer. I think we have to try to prevent larger outbreaks, particularly in workplaces, in nursing homes, in hospitals. Um, but the, the big fear is, is obviously the fall. Will we start to see a larger wave? And hopefully if we can make these changes and maintain them for the next six to 12 months, and I think that's what it's going to take, uh, hopefully we can safely reopen and, and really jump on little outbreaks when they happen, try to minimize the number of people who get infected, uh, and, and keep functioning. That would be the hope. Dr. Marek Smea has been with us, infectious disease physician, researcher at St. Joe's, and, of course, a scientist at St. Joe's Institute have uh, developed an entirely novel method for testing COVID-19. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Great work. Thanks so much for all you're doing, and be well. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. A fascinating uh, article written by Matthew Fisher uh, on the Global News site right now. You can find it on ours at 900CHML.com. China shows off military strength as Beijing eyes new rules for Hong Kong. We remember what was happening uh, in Hong Kong just prior to COVID-19 and lots of pro-democracy uh, demonstrations going on in China, uh, Beijing trying to get a lid on all of that. It subsided, obviously, uh, through the pandemic, uh, but now it appears that China is uh, adding more pressure uh, to Hong Kong, or soon will be. Let's bring in Manu, uh, Matthew Fisher. He is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for calling me. So uh, Hong Kong, uh, obviously we know what was going on with Hong Kong and China prior to COVID-19. Why is Hong Kong on the agenda now for China? Doesn't it have bigger fish to fry? 
Uh, well, things aren't going very well for China. Uh, they're, of course, trying to deflect all criticism uh, from themselves over the coronavirus and whether they let the world know in a timely way of just how lethal and how menacing uh, that virus was. Uh, the world doesn't believe China. Uh, and now recent uh, reporting indicates that the Chinese economy is facing tremendous problems after years of unprecedented growth. The economy is shrinking, and that presents its own set of political problems for the uh, Chinese supreme leader, Xi Jinping. So what do you do when things are bad like that? Well, you often look for an adventure. You try to show your own people that you're tough. And uh, the Chinese people, most of them are fed up and have been for years with what they regard as Hong Kong's whining about its requirement status when nobody else in China has such a status except the even tinier uh, former Portuguese colony of Macau. And so uh, their votes, uh, not that they really vote in China, but there's public support in doing this. And the Hong Kong Chinese who have despised uh, China, mainland China, for a very long time, they don't get a voice or a vote or a say. And China's, I think, counting on the rest of the world being so distracted by its own coronavirus problems that China gets away with it. And what they've done, uh, Scott, is they have brought in very, very um, tough laws, or they're about to, uh, about to pass them, that effectively give them total control over the, co- uh, the um, economy and the courts. Uh, of the former British territory. And I was there in 1997 during the handover. And at that time, uh, China pledged to respect the system in Hong Kong. The saying was, uh, 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 two systems, one China. And now they've uh, they've not uh, paid much attention to that ever since. But now all pretenses are off. The gloves are off. Hong Kong's going to get it. That will play well at home. But it means that uh, a promise that they would keep Hong Kong systems till uh, 2047 has been thrown out the window. And now we're waiting to see what the Western response will be. Uh, On something that you said there, Matthew, um, uh, nobody in China, the citizenry of China is not complaining uh, what is happening to Hong Kong, is not worried about what's happening to Hong Kong, because obviously they view uh, what Hong Kong is getting is certainly more than what they have. Well, why would they not want to be more like Hong Kong? You know, and I can understand this is what Western leaders were all hoping, that eventually China would become more like Hong Kong and the rest of the world. Instead, it's gone back the other direction. But why wouldn't the Chinese people, rather than saying, well, they don't we don't have it, they shouldn't have it. Why aren't they saying we want it, too? Because they don't want it. Um, They're used to authoritarian rule. Uh, They're used to being told what to do. And frankly, China's not going to change the rules for them. And that's more than a billion people. And what does Hong Kong have? I I see wildly fluctuating guesses, but it's 8 or 10 million people. In the Chinese context, it's a drop in the bucket. Also, the Chinese economy, the whole idea back in 1997 was that uh, Hong Kong would be a trade window on the world, and the Western hope was that this would uh, uh, refine them, get them more interested in the rule of law. That has not happened at all. And the Chinese people have become very jingoistic. That's why one of the pieces that I've written this week and one that's on the global website right now is about the militarism that is taking place. Uh, Canada is always a sleepy hollow. 
They just aren't aware of how much the Chinese are doing in the Western Pacific and uh, also about uh, the very strong American military response to that in the last few days. The military assets that are going out there are tremendous. Again, for China, this is about deflecting opinion, and it's also about testing the waters to see if they can invade Taiwan, because their two biggest foreign policy issues are Hong Kong and making sure there is no democracy there and making sure that Taiwan, like Hong Kong, toes the line. And Taiwan, of course, right now is a, a totally separate legal entity, even if the United Nations and Canada won't admit it. Um, how is the U.S. viewing all of this, especially as you talked about the buildup of, uh, of military in the Pacific? Well, uh, militarily, there's been a tremendous amount of activity. They've had five warships transiting the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits in the last few days. They've sent B-1 bombers uh, through uh, the Taiwan Straits. Uh, they have uh, an aircraft carrier in the region, in the Philippine Sea, the Reagan. And the Roosevelt, which had, which had all those coronavirus infections, has now finally left Guam and will very soon rejoin the fleet. So the U.S. have great military assets out there. And on top of that, the one that will really scare China is that the U.S. most unusually has announced that all of their Pacific submarines, and that's seven for sure, and probably a few more than that, are in the Western Pacific submerged right now. If Hong Kong, or rather China, has any idea of doing something with Taiwan, those submarines can tear an invasion fleet to pieces. Uh, China knows that. So it's a, a bit of a game of chicken. I don't think we're anywhere near war but uh, there are checks now being put in place, mostly by uh, the United States. And the problem for the West is no Western government wants to be too closely aligned right now with Trump because they don't like he, him personally, but also because he changes his mind all the time. So if you commit, you could end up with egg in your face. But if the West would join him in this, uh, collectively, there can be a very strong response, uh, also on the trade front. If Western countries go ahead with what a lot of them are saying and cut uh, a lot of the trade ties with China, Canada, of course, is not nearly brave enough to do this. Canada is an outlier. It is ter terrified of mentioning the word Taiwan and is terrified of doing anything hmm. to offend the Chinese. All the other countries have changed their policy on that in the last few years. Canada is the very last country still doing it. I think it's a numbskull of a policy. So where is this going? What's to stop China from making this all happen? I mean, this certainly, uh, does this not finalize the, the, the takeover of Hong Kong? It does. There's very little that can be done there. Some trade things could be instituted, sanctions, if the West could deal with things collectively in a strong way. Uh, there's evidence that they're thinking about this, but that's a long way from actually doing something about it. Militarily, the U.S., for now, because China is building its military hugely every single day, but for now, the U.S. military scares the heck out of the Chinese general. They are none of them battle-tested. They don't even know if all their fancy new equipment works in a war. The Americans, of course, have had so many wars, and they're used to operating their carrier battle groups as a tool for diplomacy. They're used to deploying uh, very good submarines, attack submarines, far forward to achieve U.S. strategic goals. So right now, 
that's the check on Taiwan. There is no check on Hong Kong, and uh, I fear it is lost. The game should have been played there by Western countries a few years ago, Scott, and they all turned their backs because they hoped they'd get trade, uh, Canada especially. Now all of them are worrying about that, Australia, Japan, France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. The only country left that is still uh, in China's thrall is Canada, and we better figure out whose side we're on. Matthew Fisher has been with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor to Global News. You can read his uh, column right now on our website, 900chml.com, and the Global News website as well. Fascinating, Matthew. Thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for the time. Bye-bye. Let's bring in Vincent Wong, Research Associate, International Human Rights Program, University of Toronto, Faculty of Law. He is with us now. Vincent, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Scott. Hopefully Vincent, well. we, we talked many times prior to COVID-19 in regard to this issue. Why is this tension increasing now? Why is China doing this to Hong Kong at this point? Sure. So um, the political analysis here is essentially the Xi administration is fed up with Hong Kong. It's no longer satisfied with letting the Hong Kong chief executive, Carrie Lam, um, their, their pro-Beijing uh, pro allies in the legislature, and quite frankly, the Hong Kong police um, manage, quote-unquote, the protest movement anymore. Uh, instead of observing from afar, the Xi administration essentially decided to directly intervene into long, uh, Hong Kong's lawmaking processes um, and essentially bypass the entire Hong Kong government, an entire lawmaking process to directly sort of impose a rule by law system. So there's no faith. The, the way that I interpret it is there's no faith left anymore in Hong Kong's lawmaking processes and their kind of puppet politicians. Um, they want to essentially hand off the task of drafting national security laws to the National People's Congress Standing Committee, which is the, the Beijing Parliament, if, if you will. So is this, is this, does this finalize the takeover? Um, yeah, many people uh, have been touting this as the, the real death of one country, two systems. Uh, I would have to essentially agree. Um, the reason being that it's not merely the national security laws uh, and their sort of overbreadth and arbitrary uh, and, and punitive use that is at question here. It is the entire bypassing of the Hong Kong lawmaking process, and particularly the Constitution. So Hong Kong has a constitution, just like, uh, you know, kind of many other jurisdictions in the world, that govern the way um, the government is supposed to function, that limits, limits powers. So normally... Beijing cannot pass laws directly for Hong Kong. Like there has to be, uh, has to go through the proper procedures, and there's kind of pan-democratic resistance in the legislature. So you know, there's some sort of uh, check and balance. There's some sort of negotiation. However, um, Beijing has a secret weapon in this case, which is Article 18 of the Hong Kong Basic Law, which is essentially its constitution, and this allows. China to directly apply laws to Hong Kong if it qualifies under certain areas of law. 
So these areas of law are defense, foreign affairs, and other matters that are outside the limits of Hong Kong. Um, even if this is challenged in the court, however, and it's struck down, Beijing also has the power of final mm. interpretation. So for people you know, familiar with Canada's history, we used to have a privy council based in London. And if something happened with the Supreme Court in Canada decision that London didn't like, they could always uh, overturn that. And that's a similar system that's happening between Beijing and Hong Kong. So where does this leave Hong Kong in the immediate future, Vincent? Um, it's, uh, it's essentially the worst case scenario. Um, in addition to directly passing the laws and bypassing the legislative process, uh, Beijing has also said in their press conference and their uh, resolution that um, we are going to uh, we give the power to set up a national security bureau inside of Hong Kong that is run by Beijing to enforce and supervise these national security laws. So even the executive is has now bled in, and any sort of kind of firewall that the constitution that the basic law uh, had is now gone. And so, so what really this means for the future of Hong Kong is that uh, protesting en masse will become incredible, much riskier and facing much harsher consequences, as well as any individual actions of uh, political resistance that are deemed unfavorable to the central government. So where does that leave uh, the demonstrations, Vincent? What, uh, how will the people of Hong Kong react? Uh, well, slowly... Um, what has happened as COVID has started to settle down in Hong Kong uh, is the demonstrations have started to slowly come back and the police are very, very much ready for it. So even these kind of little peaceful sing-alongs in protests that have been happening at malls, we've seen hundreds of riot police being deployed in kind of disproportional force to even deal with that. So um, what we're going to see is kind of an increase in uh, police state power um, and a total crackdown. Uh, what were we, to be fair, expected? Uh, a lot of people, um, but we're just hoping that it wouldn't happen. Um, and one thing that I think uh, is, is important to note is that Beijing knows what's happening, right? Beijing knows uh, this is highly unpopular. Um, the government is unpopular. The police is unpopular. Uh, this is going to make enemies, and they've accepted mm. that. They're, they're going to pay the full retail cost of doing doing this, of this enormous kind of police crackdown. And so... Vincent uh, Wong has been with... i got to interrupt you there, Vincent, because we're, we're certainly out of time, but we will cut, we will be in contact with you next week because I, I do want to con, uh, continue this discussion with you. Vincent Wong sure. is, we, is with us, Research Associate, International Human Rights Program, University of Toronto Faculty of Law. Vincent, thank you so much. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, 
as we slowly open up the doors in uh, Ontario and at various parts uh, around the country, uh, obviously retail slowly opening up right now in Ontario. Those with separate entrances uh, can open as long as uh, protocol is established and everybody keeps their distance at uh, two meters and such. Uh, obviously, some uh, stores, and so, especially with the new uh, suggestions on masks, that if we go out and we can't keep the two-meter distance, medical officials are now telling us to wear masks. Uh, who pays for all of that? And those that are, uh, you know, small uh, retailers or small mom and pop shops that are handing out uh, 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 PPEs and such for people to to feel better about themselves and better about coming into the store, more safe and secure. Who pays for all of that stuff? Uh, what about a COVID nineteen surcharge added onto your receipts? Good, bad, ugly. Uh, let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So will people be, will uh, customers be sympathetic to this? Do they mind paying an extra buck or two or five bucks or what have you uh, so everybody is safe? Let me start on the supply side before we get to the demand side. Um, and and I'm, what I'm saying to you or about to say to you is influenced um, years ago in the 1970s and the 1980s for 10 years. I was a lender in the Bank of Montreal. I lent millions of dollars to small and medium-sized enterprises, as well as um, I was a mortgage manager lending mortgage money at one point in my career. And I learned, you learn a lot in a bank, let me tell you. You really do, because you're seeing the whole Canadian economy, because everybody deals with a bank. Big companies, little companies, nonprofits, etc. And what I learned, and it's very, very true ever since when I look at the stats, restaurants are terrible businesses. Let me explain that for the restaurateurs who think I'm attacking them. I'm not. When a customer came in and said to me, I'd like to get a loan to start up a restaurant, we had a very simple answer. No, we don't do restaurants because they have the highest failure rate of all. Not talking franchises. I'm not talking McDonald's or Tim Hortons. I'm talking independent, Mm. family, or individual-owned restaurants. Their profit margins are very small. They make very little money, notwithstanding... Minister Morneau, a couple of years ago, demonizing small business and saying they were trying to take us all to the cleaners. That's only because maybe Minister Morneau has never dealt with small business. Because if you have dealt with small business, you know it's not true. It's just not true. And so you can see where I'm going. If we want businesses to reopen, and I'm talking restaurants, uh, and given that they've uh, just uh, taken a beating, an absolute beating in the last two, three months, and if we want them to reopen, I think it's inevitable that they're going to have to charge some kind of a surcharge to cover their costs for, you know, plastic barriers between the two people facing each other on the table, as we're seeing on those television images from Italy, uh, because it's going to be necessary if they want it to open. They're probably going to have to hand out masks when you come in the door. They're going to have to look after the employees, wash down the table, disinfect the table all the time, and, and so forth. So I think it's inevitable. On the demand side... Uh, first off, not everybody, and I'm one of those, I'm an older person, high risk, because I've got arthritis, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go into any restaurant, period, <laughs> just because I, I don't want to tempt the fates of the gods. Hmm. But I also understand there's lots of young people who are not high risk like me, and they're going to want to go to restaurants. And and I don't think, I don't really think that uh, a $1 or $2 or $3 surcharge is going to discourage most uh, people who enjoy the social experience of going out to a bar or a restaurant, you know, or to meet some friends. 
could be a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. It could be mom and dad. It could be brother, sister, just close friends. It's it's deep in our culture, and I and I do think that people, as long as the fee is not you know burdensome, you know if it's ten dollars or something, I think a lot of people will say no, no, too much. But if it's you know one dollar, two dollars, three dollars, something enough to generate some revenue for them, but not so much that it uh, annoys people and sends them away. I, I think the market will, I think the customers will support it. So how much should it be? You talked about price uh, is a sensitive thing. Should it be a percent? What would you What would you suggest? Excellent question. I don't think, uh, let me just put it again because I know restaurants, I lend money, notwithstanding that I said we didn't do them. Some were on the books. And uh, in this instance, it's not so much that the protective equipment is going to be gazillions of dollars. Of course it's not. The biggest cost that's going to be imposed on the restaurants is they're not going to be able to fill up the restaurant. They're going to be having to space everybody. And the figures I'm seeing from restaurant entrepreneurs who know what they're talking about is they can bring in no more than about 50% customers of what they used to bring in because they have to create distance between every customer. You can't be cheek by jowl. And so their biggest cost is going to be that they can only put half as many people in the restaurant at any moment. And that's going to cut their cash flow by 50%. So that tells me it's got to be more than a dollar. Um, it's going to be, but as I said, you don't, I don't think you want it too big, 10 bucks. So I'm thinking the sweet spot, I'm talking a full sit-down meal, okay? I'm not talking fast food here. I'm mm-hmm. talking a full sit-down meal. Probably around $5 is what I'm guessing. When does this end? Well, um, there's two answers to your question, and I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm very empirical, as you know, Scott. I'm very factual and looking up data all the time. Uh, the one answer is when they have a vaccine, and so there's no more risk. Mm-hmm. And who knows when that's going to happen. The other possibility, and it could come a lot quicker, is when they can do an almost instantaneous testing. I'm old enough to remember, uh, and I'm not changing the subject at all, that a pregnancy test took a long time. Uh, you know, a long time. Hmm. And then they got better and better at speeding it up, and now you can get a pregnancy test, and, you know, your girlfriend, your wife, your whatever, can get one in like five minutes mm-hmm. and determine if they're pregnant. Where I'm going with this, it was announced this morning on the Telegraph, the British government announced that they are in a stage of approving, or uh, I believe approving, a 20-minute COVID test that will be, provide accurate results. Why this is very, very critically important is if they can come up with a very fast test, 5-minute, 10-minute, 15-minute, then I would suggest that airlines and restaurants are going to be using those tests to give, you see, if you want to fill up the restaurant and the government says, no, 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 you can't do that because people might have COVID, well, then you say, okay, I'm going to test everybody. And then once I've tested everybody, I certify to the public You've come into my restaurant, you take the test, you wait a few minutes over in the patio and have a beer. Once the test is negative, you can come in, but then we can fill up the restaurant. So it's not crazy suggesting a, that you take the test. And if some people say, you know, go to hell, I'm not taking the test, well, good, go to another restaurant. Uh, you know, or get another. I, I can just see this now, Ian. You know how when you show up to a restaurant and uh, you've got maybe a few minutes, twenty minutes till your table's ready, you go yes. sit at the bar. And now you just wait. You go sit over there with a drink until your test comes back. No, I'm not being. Some people <laughs> say that's nuts. Yeah. I will not, Scott. I am a frequent flyer. I have flown all over the world many, many times, many times, over a hundred times across the ocean, east and west, meaning to Europe and Asia. 
I will not get on that airplane now until they can certify to me. I mean certify to me, not the risk is low. No, thank you. No, no, no. I want you to certify that every last human being on that plane is COVID-free. And the only way you can do that is to test them at the airport. Now, someone could say, well, you know, they might not, they, this, it may not show up in the test. There's always that remote, remote possibility. But if you're testing everybody, you know, two hours before the flight, I think that's good enough. That's, I would accept it. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being obviously risk averse. You can apply that same instantaneous testing, as I'm calling it, or five-minute testing, 10-minute testing, again, to restaurants and anywhere where you're in close quarters, where we're talking about delaying them opening or not opening with the same volumes. Think of a baseball game, a stadium, a hockey stadium. I mean, they're talking about canceling hockey and baseball and basketball because of this very issue. You don't know who's coming in that might have the, the virus. Well, so getting back getting back to this tax again, Ian, why not just raise prices as opposed to putting on, say, like a $5 surcharge for COVID-19 precaution? My answer would be uh, for twofold. Number one, you're signaling signaling to the customers, hey, I am spending specific money, because you're implying it's dedicated, even if it isn't. You're, you're saying to everybody, I am taking all kinds of extra precautions that are costing money for your health and safety. So it's partly, call it marketing, okay? And, and the other reason is also dealing with consumer psychology. If you just simply raise the prices, then I think consumers will see it as a bit of a scam to, to do what? raise prices as opposed to deal with my health and safety you're just using this as an excuse to gouge me for more money that's why i think that's why the fuel surcharge was so clever by air canada and all the airlines if anybody complained they could say look have you looked at the price of oil well it went up it went up very dramatically that's why there's a fuel surcharge and it's kind of hard to argue with that if that's true all right uh, valid points ian leesman with us sprott school of business carlton university ian as always thank you so much for the time be well thanks very much scott all right uh we've noticed common denominators here in the pre, uh, press conferences of both the premier and the prime minister uh testing has been a hot button issue in the last couple of days uh and now people questioning the federal government who has said they have the capacity to to test uh 60,000 a day why more are not being tested to talk more about all of this Dr. Ahmad Khalid is with us faculty member in human and social sciences health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University and with us now Ahmad thanks so much for the time hope you're doing well thanks Scott happy to see you so interesting that we now have both the province and the feds talking about their capacity for testing, yet uh, certainly uh, the premier frustrated that more cannot be done. Do you think there's some confusing uh, confusion in the messaging here? Uh, they're talking about uh, places that are open for testing that, that aren't, people aren't even lining up to get in a- anymore. Do you think there needs to be more uh, uh, maybe communication about who needs to be testing and, and, and who shouldn't be testing at this time? I think this speaks to a much bigger issue here, Scott, which is that we need a national strategy. I think every province is taking their own approach of how they want to test. So the messaging has been all over the place, depending on where you are. But even within our own communities, if we look at Ontario, how many people actually know where to go get tested and how many people are comfortable in going to get tested? There is a there is a notion among the general population of a fear to go get tested and contracting COVID-19 at those centers. So, yes, I do think that the messaging needs to be a lot louder and clearer about where to get tested, that it is safe to get tested. And perhaps we need to look at alternative models 
of how we disseminate that knowledge. I think that we're relying a lot on uh, official news from the government, which is important, but also we need to think about creative ways of creating promotional videos, infographics, ways to reach out the majority of the public. With the provinces all being different and having different scenarios, and I'm just playing devil, devil's advocate here, Ahmad, can you come up with a federal uh, message here, a federal plan in regard to at least a, a minimal amount of guidelining around testing? That's precisely it. National strategies are about providing a baseline. It's providing guidance for the provinces and where they need to go on specific topics. And in this case, we'll be testing. Nobody's saying that it needs to be strictly followed. The provincial governments have the right the delivery of their health care and how they decide to do it depending on the context they're in. But we definitely need a national strategy about how that would look like. How many assessment centers are minimum? How many testing kits should we be testing every day? I think those kind of things, we look to the federal government for that direction, and we saw indications of it today that that will be happening. What about who should be tested? So that has changed over time. So we started off with this pandemic saying only people with symptoms and only specific symptoms. We've now moved to basically anybody with any symptom can get tested. And uh, British Columbia and other provinces, including Ontario, are now going to look into asymptomatic testing. And by that, I mean is that anybody who wishes to get tested can get a test. The real question remains, though, how many people can we afford uh, and capable of testing and how fast can we get those results back? So if you're someone out there listening right now and you're not feeling well and you think, I might have this, what do you do? please go and get tested. So the messaging has changed on this. So uh, I think the point that we're the, the public health officials are trying to make here is that we want to test as many people as possible, primarily because we're reopening things. So we have to remind the public of that. That's part of reopening. It comes in two folds. Like you can't reopen life and businesses without increasing testing because you don't want that drastic second wave. So if you have symptoms or you suspect of having COVID-19, please find the nearest assessment center and go and try to get tested. So can you now go right into an assessment center and be assessed, or do you need to go through your doctor first? You can go through your assessment center now and get tested. In the, pre, in, the, in the past, it has to have that you have to have a specific symptoms and that your healthcare provider has to decide whether you're qualified for testing. Those times are gone now. We know now that anybody who suspects to have symptoms uh, can get tested. And with very soon, they're probably going to announce that asymptomatic people, people who are not showing any symptoms at all, can get tested. Uh, we were talking about, as we have for weeks now, uh, Ahmed, over Amid, over, um, uh, oh, sorry, Ahmad, over uh, how many people have uh, new cases have been detected every single day. We saw those numbers high up into the 400s. We saw them come down uh, below 400. We're now seeing numbers back up around 441 today. What, what does that say to you? It says to me that this is a natural progression of a pandemic. I think we have this unfound expectation that numbers will drop dramatically. How is that supposed to happen if we don't have a vaccine or a treatment? As long as we don't have those two things, and people are moving in the communities in some respect, whether they're going to grocery stores or, you know, running errands. Community transmission of this virus will happen. We, it's going to be very difficult to get to zero without a vaccine or a treatment. So the numbers, the fluctuation of the numbers will continue to be the case for quite some time. The real question is here. The, the good news is that the majority of our cases do recover and are healthy. So uh, we don't have to worry about sort of that concern. But what we really need to be working on right now is testing and wrapping that up. 
Um, obviously, we can't stay locked up forever. I was out yesterday for the first time in a long time, and I noticed visibly a difference. There are more people out now. It's not a ghost town the way it was a few weeks ago. How does that make you feel? What are your concerns? I am a little bit worried. I won't lie to you. I think that I'm concerned that people will take a very relaxed approach to this. The truth is the virus is still real and it's still out there. And I want to make a message very clear to everybody who's listening to us today that, you know, if you're not worried about your own health, please, I must remind you what I've been saying for a long time. Think about the vulnerable populations. Think about our priority groups, your own family members who, if they get COVID-19 from you because you're asymptomatic, are not showing any symptoms they might not do as well as you think they would do. So uh, we have to remind people of that. I've been seeing a lot of messages on social media that are sending the wrong message out there that, oh, most people are recovering, so why do we need to worry? Well, you need to worry because you might not, you might be okay, but your father or mother or grandmother or somebody you know who is immunocompromised will not be okay and might have a drastic effect of COVID-19 if they contract it from you. So in the last couple of days, doctor, we've seen some messaging change in regard to masks. So let's just reinforce that. When should we be wearing a mask? Obviously, as we go out, we are going to see more people wearing masks. My advice on this is clear and simple. Keep a mask in your pocket only for the reason that some businesses now might not allow you to go in without a mask. So I wouldn't want you to be turned away at the door for not having a mask. Now, whether you should wear it or not, the message from the public health agency is if you cannot maintain the two meters distance in a space, wear the mask. So if you're going to go, uh, the first place I always think of is Costco because it usually generates a lot of crowds. Uh, so yes, you would want to wear it there. But if you're going for a run uh, and you think that you're not going to be a lot of people on that path, maybe not. I am putting a mask in my pocket just so that I'm not turned away from places that I need to access. So I think that's the clear message right now. This is new for Canadians. What do you think the psychological factor is going to be, doctor? Because, again, I noticed yesterday, boom, time to wear the mask. It's, you know, in almost in two days, everything changed. How does that affect our psyche? Well, the, the, the interesting thing is that a study got released from McMaster University that looked at how Canadians were so fast at adopting the face mask. And close to more than 60% of Canadians very rapidly got into the face mask culture, which actually surprised us because... You know, it it went against sort of how we lived our life up until now. And so I think the general public are more open to this. What I've been trying to promote more, Scott, is this idea of how do you communicate with a face mask on? I think that's where the transition is going to be. We're worried about, you know, people who can't communicate uh, uh, verbally clearly. And so a face mask is another barrier to their communication. I think those things we need to think about. But uh, here's my, my simple advice to everybody on this weekend. If you come across somebody with a face mask and you can't understand what they're saying, there's nothing wrong with you just saying that. Be like, hey, I'm sorry, but I'm having a hard time understanding what you're saying. Can we somehow maintain distance and you communicate this better? I think by asking politely, we can get very far. Good point. A little common sense goes a long way. Uh, Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member in human sciences, social sciences, and health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. We greatly appreciate this. Be well this weekend. You too. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.